up our podcast this week, we tackle Trance and its director, Danny Boyle. We go head-to-head with G.I. Joe's evil president, Jonathan Price, And we make sweet, sweet soundtrack music with Good Vibrations' David Holmes. Plus, all the news and reviews you could eat in the only movie podcast that's not bothered by the Rolling Stones headlining Glastonbury. Frankly, we'd much rather see Wild Stallions give it a go. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. I'm joined, as ever, by three redoubtable colleagues whose knowledge of film is only surpassed by their knowledge of, well, frankly everything else. Uh, first up, we have a man who's re-edited many celebrities for Empire Magazine, from the Three Amigos to Mel Gibson and Danny Glover, and perhaps most impressive of all, Gary Busey and Coherent Sentences. It's Nick Dissemlian. Hello, Chris. Or as Gary Busey would say, <laughs> <laughs> Transcribing must have been a bitch. It was difficult. Next up, we have another one of those pesky Dissemlians. Uh, this one, of course, is our art house guru, a man who sat through two-thirds of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 before he realised it wasn't called The Secret of the Ozu. Yeah. <laughs> He's even brought in the little monkey. He's brought Gary Busey. He's brought Gary <laughs> it's Phil Dissemian. Hi, Chris. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you. Good. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. Good. It's nice to see you. Sounded a little bit despondent there, didn't I? I'm okay. Yeah. I'm Come okay. on. Yeah, I know. Oh, I know. I'm, I'm, seeing a, I'm seeing Olympus has fallen in exactly 57 minutes, so I should be happy, shouldn't I? Last but not least, it's our resident whippersnapper and podcast editor all the way from Q Branch. It's the wonderfully wish I'll ask Ali Plum. Hello, sir. <laughs> Hello. Right, okay, let's get on with it. Uh, let's tackle some of your questions, your comments coming in this week on the Twitter machines. Uh, at Andrew underscore Moores 79 says, Sorry, I love you guys, but enough of The Rock. Please spend more time talking about actors. I think he's picked the wrong week to, to send in that question because we'll be all up in The Rock's grill later on. We'll be talking about G.I. Joe Retaliation, and he's in that, and he's probably in Good Vibrations as well. He's in a lot of movies coming up over the next few weeks, so, Andrew, I'm sorry, there's going to be a lot of rock chat. Uh, at DFAD40K cuts to the heart of the matter with with all the talk of 80s remakes when do Hollywood start in the 90s remakes and what 90s films would you like to see remade that's a question I find this quite difficult because I think for me I grew up watching films in the 90s and 90s films were my films so to have them remade feels almost alien to me and the other thing is I, I look through like some of the best and the worst 90s films and nothing really leaps out at me I mean, some films that I love that I'd maybe like to see again with different actors, but even then, like Out of Sight, for example, is as good as it is. Why would I want to touch it? Maybe Life is Beautiful. I know you're a fan, Chris. Are you? Oh, dear, dear. Buongiorno, Principessa. No, I'm not. I'm not a fan. I thought it was a ghastly movie. Eeks. Absolutely ghastly movie. Uh, yeah, Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan. I, oh, I honestly, I agree with Ali. Um... I'm not sure which ones you'd want because they all very, feel very much of their era and in fact we saw one film this year which felt very much of that era as well in Broken City um, with Mark Wahlberg and Russell Crowe and it just felt kind of weirdly out of time it was kind of a remake of City Hall yeah it kind of was Ish. I don't know yeah there you go City well, Hall. it's interesting we've, uh, we've started with the 90s remakes Total Recall is a 90s remake and uh, you know that could throw up the likes of you know Jurassic Park is that going to get remade one of these days uh, you, you mentioned Alien Resurrection 1997 I believe that was that could get remade I mean will we see remakes of Austin Powers Con Air they could have a go at remaking Waterworld uh, now that technology uh, will allow Kevin Costner's full vision (laughs) (laughs) even more water presumably just more water yeah (laughs) what good remakes have there been recently help me out here I can't think because I think we come at it like do we want to see any of these films remade? Why? There seems to be a trend for taking an original property and watering it down in mm. moving it along the ratings curve till it gets to about a PG. Die Hard, 
was a good example of that recently. I think Prometheus as well, to a certain extent. Um, I just, there's nothing, I don't know. There's nothing really that, that kind of leaps out and makes you think, wow. I would say that, you know, out of sight, the Elmore Leonard stuff that was really good in the 90s, those kind of like quite sort of tangy, postmodern kind of comedy things, love to see some more of those. Mm. You know, Shane Black's back, which is promising. Um, they were good. Elmore, Elmore Leonard, out of, out of sight, Jackie Brown. Well, I'm just looking down here. I mean, there's been talk about remaking The Rocketeer, which came out in 1991, and that's, that's a good idea. That's, that's a good idea, film. actually. Yeah, because it's not it's not great. It's I like it, but it's not great. It Wasn't Captain America kind of The Rocketeer? No, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Um, looking at other 1991 films, I mean, for goodness sake, let's see uh, Point Break. Could be an interesting, <sighs> interesting film. Very, very brave. If they were to no, do that, I would leave that alone. I, it's um, funny that we, we talk about 90s films and the 90s vibe, you know, kind of Harrison Ford in the line of fire. That kind of movie, I think you're going to get a bit of that, you guys, when you're watching Olympus Has Fallen, which I watched last night, which very much had that 90s vibe. Um, yeah, executive decision. Yeah, exactly. Twice, you know, White House. <laughs> Olympus Has Fallen, White House Down. And, and one of Owen, Owen Williams, one of our writers, did a great piece on the Die Hard formula transposed to different settings. And many of them were based in the 90s, but they seem to be coming back in quite a big way as well. But again, like 12 and PG versions. So, What about a remake of The Fugitive or Air Force One? Fugitive, Ooh, Fugitive. could possibly stand up. Air Force One, again, they're kind of doing it, aren't they? With White House Down, Olympus Has Fallen. Or kind of and the Liam Neeson one? Uh, yeah, the Liam Neeson one, uh, non-stop, where he's an air marshal and terrorists are aboard. Or it's not terrorists, it's, it's one guy. Let's okay. remake them all. Let's just pick a random year. And then remake them all. Stop, or my mom will shoot. That could be remade. The player. The player. The player. Yeah, I don't have a burning desire to see many films from the 90s remade. And besides, Hollywood's kind of not really remaking it, but they're looking at an awful lot of movies that came out at the time and and tweaking them or turning them into different franchises. For example, they're not remaking The Hunt for Red October, which came out in 1990, but they are bringing out a new Jack Ryan movie and they're rebooting Mm. that franchise. So It does feel like it's getting to that point in the cycle that there's a Tomb Raider a reboot happening and there's a Teenage Mutant Hero Stroke Ninja Turtles thing mm-hmm. happening so even though they're not things that were created in the 90s necessarily uh, at Louise Bear asks are you getting as bored of the several new versions of trailers for films as I am three extra shots do not a new trailer make it's been my week this week has been studying the infinite possibilities of marketing when it comes to the Wolverine and that's definitely what this uh, commenter Louise Burr is commenting about first of all James Mangold who is, who's a firm and, and fair tweeter uh, tweezed his term uh, a Vine version of the trailer which if you don't know a Vine is a six minute gif six so, second six second sorry a six, six second mi- it's a six second gif so a moving image which flashed up I don't know 20 images just in quick succession then there was a 20 second trailer which was uh, again almost ludicrous to just say out loud that was from MTV mm-hmm. and then two days after that so yesterday we got a full two minute trailer yes. then oh there's more we had a US trailer which was slightly shorter than that which was like 1 minute 55 which was a different cut and much better you can check it out on iTunes and of course on mparonline.com then there were the stills then there were the posters then there were the motion posters don't get me wrong I'm excited about the Wolverine but I do feel that maybe we are going a bit too far with the eking out of traileriness maybe we should just be given the trailer maybe yeah. some stills see how it goes the teaser for a teaser for a teaser is is pop eating itself uh, and I don't know where it's going to end nanosecond teasers well I mean JJ Abrams showed that what was it how many 
Three seconds? No, no. It was no, like, how many frames was it? Was it three or four it frames three or four of Star Trek in Starkness on Letterman or whatever in the US? And, and that was Spock People were breaking it down. But, you know, People were still breaking it down. Break Who down. is this? What's, What's here? It looks like a volcano. It, ooh, it is a volcano. What have we learned? Who knows? There's a volcano, There's a volcano, volcano in this film. In the darkness. Yeah. So there's an appetite for it you know feed I guess feed the demand I, yeah I agree with Ali it's a bit this Wolverine week has been a little crazy but I think it detracts from the main trailer you just throw the trailer out there and the trailer is good enough I think the trailer for the Wolverine's good enough it's got enough intrigue it looks good yeah to stand on his own it's two it's a nice key trailer absolutely yeah. unless think- the end point is Hugh Jackman coming to all our houses in the lead up to the release and just saying Wolverine Wolverine's coming giving us the release date and then leaving it again <laughs> or every week they just release an extra 30 seconds of the film until finally you have the the, the entire film <laughs> the entire film and maybe this is it this is the way it's going to go well, this is a problem people have been having with Iron Man 3 there are several spoilers I think out and out spoilers in the latest Iron Man 3 TV spots out and official sanctioned video footage there's another side of this which is Lego Lego which we've discussed before gets to see the film or is told how the films are going to work so Lego for Iron Man 3 we can actually see the final boss fight in a Lego version already I'm just a bit sad because I think if they just went here's one trailer here's another trailer and maybe a third possibly closer to release and they'd be more momentous when we see them as it is Mm. it's like oh it's yet another trailer or it's a 20 second version or a children's TV spot or it's da 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 I, I would throw in one thing, and in, not in an entitled sense, but we, we do often see films as screenings and we don't see the trailers in the cinema. So we kind of maybe lose mm. that element of the process where you go and see a movie, you pay for it, and you see the trailers. It's quite exciting. And then maybe you see the other stuff online, which feeds into that, whereas we tend to get all the things online. That's where we see it, and it can, comes in waves. That's a good point. I mean, you, the, the people who will be downloading the Wolverine trailer, if you've no interest in the Wolverine, whether it's the tweezer, the teaser, the teaser it. to the teaser, or the trailer itself, you're not going to bother downloading it. Yeah. So that's that's a that's a decent point, I guess. I think so. Yeah. We see a lot of posters. We I never see any of these posters outside or on a bus stop <laughs> or where are they? <laughs> They're just like I don't know. It's just sort of a JPEG. Mm. But okay. you know. Um, this is going to be an interesting one because neither James uh, nor Helen are here. Um, this is from at Alex Carter eighteen oh one who asks, "Who's your favorite original Star Trek character? Any any Star Trekkers, um, Trekkies, Trekkie Trekkers well, here? Our Ali Wybrew is a colossal Trekkie, and James explained to me yesterday. Sorry to interrupt. James explained which is right out of Trekkie and Trekker. Oh yeah, because I asked him. Apparently, uh, it was originally Trekkie, uh, but then." Uh, people worried that would sound offensive so it got changed to Trekker but James still calls it Trekkie okay in Australia's Trekko I prefer Trekkie I have to say you've got to take ownership of these insults (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah it could get a lot more offensive to be honest she said Spock anyway and then I pressed her and said what's your favourite Spock moment and she's still thinking so that's not much use and that was about 14 hours ago not the bit where he dies in Mm. in uh, Wrath of Khan Spoiler. Um, <laughs> I, I've got some answers to this. I feel like I'm in a vacuum, in a black hole, and no one else really gives a crap. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say from Next Generation, which wasn't the answer, is Q. Oh, come on. Uh, played by uh, John Delancey. He's absolutely fantastic. But it's just cheating. And these aren't technically characters, but I would say the Tribbles, which are the small fairy uh, buggers that uh, multiply like Tribbles in the uh, original series. Oh. There's a great episode. Well, it's not a great episode, but it's called in Deep Space Nine Trials and Tribulations <laughs> uh, so check that out if only to say that you have seen it they are also the mortal enemies of the Klingons which I just Ooh. love as a concept that these small little furry cute <laughs> creatures whose means of survival is to be endearing to humanoid creatures Oh, what do they sound like? they kind of squeak a bit 
No, I'm not doing it. Mm. Essentially, they're like that crude monkey you have there, but without a face. That's pretty much it. Is that Enough. better than the crude's the film? That yes, <laughs> yes, because it's the, it's the belt that kind of clings to you. Please tell me that's the Nick Cage character. No, Nick Cage is a big, lumbering, <sighs> hulking man, whereas that is just a squeaky kind of like sloth. It's a sloth who it's wraps sloth. around a Ryan Reynolds slash guy's waist and on two occasions no three occasions makes that noise uh, arguably the funny bit in the film you see the scrat of the um, <laughs> he's the, the scrat the franchise it's going to be a franchise isn't it because it's made oh, yeah, it has it's made a lot of money in the US money. The big, it has crudes to even crudier the yeah. biggest animated release in the US since November last year it's just vaguely depressed when you see movies like Rise of the Guardians and, you know, which has only just squeaked 100 million but anyway let's move on I'm going to go out on the limb here and say Kirk so anyway, um, <laughs> if you want to get in the show, uh, the usual methods are you can tweet us. We're at Empire Magazine. Uh, hashtag is Empire Podcast. Otherwise, we won't see what you're saying to us. We're on Facebook at uh, Empire Magazine. And you can email us podcast at EmpireOnline.com. Okay, time for this week's first interview. The Excellent Good Vibrations comes out today and is the story of Terry Hooley, a DJ turned record store owner in Belfast at the height of the Troubles, whose indefatigable attitude and passion for music became something of a beacon for others during Northern Ireland's darkest times. He also discovered a host of great new bands, including The Undertones. The film is an absolute blast. The soundtrack is great, as you might expect, given that it's produced by David Holmes, a Northern Irish musician slash DJ behind some of the best soundtracks of the last few years from Out of Sight to Ocean's Eleven and more. He popped in to talk to myself and Dan and Jolin about working with Steven Soderbergh, Terry Hooley, and of course, much, much more. We're delighted to be joined in the pub with by David Holmes, uh, composer of the soundtrack for Good for Patients and also producer. Yes, first, that, first yeah. time. How did that come about? Um, well, Glenn and Lisa and I decided a long time ago, well, not maybe six, seven years ago, that rather than kind of like, we'd always stood in kitchens, mm. post-clubbing. <laughs> talking about how we're going to change the world and we're going to do it together and it was one of those um, I suppose uh, conversations that actually sort of evolved into reality and uh, we just decided you know what let's just do it ourselves we're, we're, we're going to completely waste our time just waiting on this to happen mm-hmm. Um what on earth was I ever thinking of actually getting into producing a film <laughs> <laughs> you know it's, it's an absolute nightmare and um, I can know it's it's actually you know sometimes it is an absolute nightmare just trying to you've no idea how many times we had raised the money in good vibrations then we lost the money and then we raised yeah. it again and it was like oh my god this is just and then you know um, it's just a weird you know just at that starting point trying to get something off the ground is just incredibly difficult Mm. But now that we've actually done it, we did it on our own terms. And um, I was very fortunate enough to meet people like Andrew Eaton along the way Mm. in my own sort of personal journey. He gave me my first movie, Resurrection Man, which this man reviewed. That's right. Yes, my first ever review. Was your first ever soundtrack? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) so it was kind of like, you know, uh, just a lot of experience sort of gathered, you know, through the years by all of us yeah, to yeah. get to the stage and um, you know for me personally as well like when you make you know I, I suppose in any genre in um, you know like just for instance me doing all the Oceans movies in LA I'm the Oceans guy I'm the cool <laughs> funky soundtrack yeah. he's the guy to go and I just don't want to do that all the time I mean right. it's fantastic I'll do it for Steven Soderbergh you know, until the cows come home, or anyone who actually wants to, you know, 
there's so many mo- really bad movies I was offered to do that sound and I, I just mm. kind of refused and I thought you know what if I don't actually do something about it myself I'm never going to get out of that rut yeah, yeah. so it was kind of like let's design our own careers and with Glenn and Lisa you know we've we've now got a slate of films that we're developing and they're all different and they all require different kind of ideas musically and to me that's what ex- it's exciting you know rather than just going through this kind of process of doing something for a living and even though the results um, you know financially are fantastic mm. I, you know doing that I just don't want to do it I, you know I'd rather do you know movies that are uh, you know challenging and more inspiring for me personally because yeah, yeah. ultimately I'm just in the music I don't consider myself to be that guy <laughs> I just like I consider myself just to be like this is a really great idea how do we do it? How do we tackle it? How, you know, actually, when I did Hunger, you know, I, I, I went after that movie, you know, quite aggressively, like on the phone, please send me the script. Mm. And then they sent me the script and I had to sort of make a, an embarrassing phone call back and say, if you put movie, music in this film, you're going to ruin it. Mm. And then really? that, that's how I got the yeah. gig. This is, <laughs> that's exactly how we feel. And Steve McQueen came to my house and we just spoke about, you know, okay, well, what is it that you want? He says, well, I want the music to be, but completely non-musical. I was like, okay, <laughs> one of those. <laughs> and um, I had actually been working on a track of my album, The Holy Pictures, and there was a one sound in it that was just an element of a track, mm. which was a hurdy-gurdy, which is this just drone that was just in a loop. And mm. I sent it to him, and he, he, he just said, this is it. That's the score, you know. But but it was the right thing because you don't even really notice it. It's it's almost just this calling. Yeah, yeah. And there's so much. I think music is so overused and badly used in a lot of films. They just you know smother it. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. feel something now. Yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. cry. Yeah, you know? <laughs> get excited. Yeah. get terrified. <laughs> and I I, th- I often think that like you know when you don't use music, it can be far more effective. And even just the natural sounds of what's going on, like concrete sounds, you know, just in hunger, it was, you know, the the beatings and the and the and the, the silence, and the you know even just cleaning up the slop and the prison cell doors, and you know, to me that's music, mm. and mm. it's not used enough in films. No, true. It's funny what you're saying about being the oceans guy because I think after uh, Out of Sight, really, that that was that really distinctive sound that you had that then. You know, it seemed to be replicated quite a lot, and it's yeah, yeah. funny. Uh, I was speaking with um, uh, Paul and Phil Hartnell, Orbital, recently. He's coming tonight who, uh, to the Good Vibrations premiere. Oh, excellent! Good yeah. stuff. Good Glenn Leyburn, the director of Good Vibrations. I brought Orbital to play in Belfast in 1990, hmm. and Glenn, I actually watched this, and he's going to hate me for this, <laughs> but he was actually on the dance floor crying uh, <laughs> with happiness. Wow! When they wow. were playing Chime. Right. Wow. And because the, they came to Belfast and they, they, they twice and they, they left off a, a cassette, um, like a cassette. Says, Check it. This is our new stuff that we're working on. Mm. And we were driving through Belfast, all, you know, under the influence of mind-altering chemicals, <laughs> listening really? to, to <laughs> listening to this this tape and this track. Kept on, and we said to them, "This track is unbelievable." And then that was the track that became Belfast. Belfast. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, sorry. Yes, carry no, on. no, no. That's right. <laughs> uh, they were recently saying that you know when 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 they get their brief from from filmmakers who want them to do soundtracks, they uh, always say, "Can you make it sound like Drive?" 
or uh, the social network. And that seems to be the trend now, I guess, you know. So you were very much, you know, the out of sight and oceans very much. That was exactly. the sound of the 90s. And now we're in this kind of, I don't know. All I've ever been trying to do is from that is get out of that, hmm. you know. <laughs> but it's been great. I've been, you know, doing movies like Hunger and Code 46 and mm. now, like Good Vibrations and stuff. You get a chance to kind of um, just experiment and, and just with sound. Yeah, Code 46 is amazing uh, score, actually. I just, nice. It's beautiful. Absolutely yeah. Beautiful. No, I really, it's one of my favourites, actually. Yeah. Another Winterbottom, Michael Andrew Eaton. Yeah. It's so, kind of a good soundtrack is that you, 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 you can just play it as an album. Exactly. <laughs> you can exactly. treat it as a standalone I just, album. Actually, I just did an interview for someone recently, and they said, you know, that was one of the questions, should a great soundtrack be... <laughs> actually just appreciated as a great record and it was like absolutely listen to Once Upon a Time in America or yes. you know um, Midnight Cowboy or you know I mean they're just great pieces of music that mm-hmm. are just timeless and you know with or without the pictures is just it's the same you know it gives you that same kind of feeling you know actually both those soundtracks I've actually physically cried my eyes out to yeah, uh, yeah. They're, they're just so moving um uh, especially Midnight Cowboy, I think is probably my favourite soundtrack of all time. I just love yeah. the the simplicity of it, you know. And I I actually love that film. I remember seeing it for the first time, and you know, on a black and white television, and just is that my mother coming? <laughs> 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 you know. So was there a sense after uh, you know Out of Sight and after the especially the first Ocean's movie that Hollywood was trying to put you into a box? Yeah, I mean, they were trying to they were they were trying to force you to do conventional scores exactly my agent like I I swear you've no idea how many crap movies I turned down Mm. and they all wanted that that thing and it's like everything in Hollywood you know they get something they see something it works and then they try to sort of just constantly replicate it hence why we're getting you know multiple like sequels and Mm. you know remaking movies that should never have been remade that's a good thing about Oceans the original Oceans 11 was rubbish (laughs) so it really you know great idea bad movie so yeah do a remake good idea (laughs) saying that if Steven Soderbergh called me tomorrow and said we're doing Oceans 14 everyone's gonna die but Yan um, <laughs> I, I would be uh, over the moon <laughs> sign me up Stephen uh, <laughs> so, uh, so Out of Sight was your second soundtrack after Resurrection Man yeah and uh, how did that happen for you how did Stephen get in touch really weirdly um, I had this album called Let's Get Killed mm. which also Glenn and I we went to New York with a, a dap machine and travelled the sort of the murky streets of New York and God knows what time in the morning. <laughs> sort of putting, you know, sticking microphones in, in in the faces of any freak we could sort of like, sort of, you know, come across. Mm. And uh, and my idea was, you know, the first time I went to New York, it was still relatively like this rough, edgy city. Yeah, it wasn't pre Giuliani. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. And there was like a freak on every sort of corner, and I just thought, you know, what's the point? I don't need to sample any movies, or, you know, this is. City's full of samples, you know. Mm. We, I mean, so we did that, and hence why the album's called "Let's Get Killed" because literally that's what happened. Um, <laughs> walking down, because everybody was starting to get a bit freaked out. It was like, "I was like, fuck it, let's get killed." I said, ah, that's a great name for this album. <laughs> so maybe let's not get killed, so we could do the album. Well, <laughs> a few minutes down the street, it said actually on the uh, spray paint on the wall, it said "Don't die just yet," uh, and it was like, yeah. you know. I don't want to read into anything, um, but I'm really shitting myself. Are we going to die? Um, and so that record became 
I don't think the music was cinematic. I, I actually you've got the Bond theme on there. Your cover version of the Bond theme is on there. Radio, well, Radio Seven. Yeah, that was kind of like they asked me to do one, right? And then I did it, and then Moby got the gig. Mm. They give it to him. Um, right. His version. Um, it's fine. And uh, I actually just found out that David Arnold didn't do. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thomas, which is yeah, Thomas yeah, Newman. Which is yeah. kind of like I love Thomas Newman, but mm. for David Arnold to sort of stop doing that is kind of, you know, it, it, it. it I haven't seen it, so. Mm. But it's well, just like it's Thomas almost, Newman's Sam Mendes's guy, isn't he? Yeah. So you can imagine that for Sam Mendes to get the gig, he would have been able to say, "Is well, that actually, what happened?" I, I think so. I right. think so. Cause like, um, well, the, I don't know, but I'm, that's my guess. Because David cause, Arnold, yeah. my God, like he is, like you know, he's. He's, he's he, you know, he's he's run away with that, mm. you know, that's it, his gig kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. Um, but um, what were we talking about? I was just saying because you, you did your version of the bomb theme. Oh, so but out of sight. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> so anyway, that record basically was picked Jersey Films, um, which was Stacey Sher and Michael Schamberg and Danny DeVito's company. Two girls in the music department there had sort of loved the record and they shelved it and then when they were producing Out of Sight they introduced it to Steven Soderbergh and mm. they actually called me up and I was actually weirdly just How, would you be interested in coming to Los Angeles and talking about you know scoring a possible movie uh, called Out of Sight and it's directed by Steven Soderbergh who did Sex Lies and Videotape and I was like oh yeah him <laughs> and because he did that and then he kind of like sort of disappeared yeah you know he yeah. you know which I always totally admire him for you know what I mean he just didn't do what Hollywood wanted him to do he says yeah. right I'm going to go and make Skatopolis yeah so it's brilliant and um, <laughs> but I was actually driving down Sunset Boulevard when I got the phone call right I was really weird I was like well actually I'm in LA right now and uh, they sort of uh, I need a camarada who now manages the Sex Pistols went on to produce the filth and the fury mm. she called me uh, she came down to my hotel and showed me like this kind of trailer and you know um, then they invited me I had to go back to Ireland and then they invited me back and I, I went over there and um, it was just my first Hollywood experience it was so surreal because they <laughs> kind of like because it's just this kid from Belfast you know what I mean and you know coming from Bambridge mm. when you have that first experience yeah, it's kind of like it's beyond a dream. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I didn't even consider for a second. It wasn't even a an aspiration. It was like, this is really weird. Hmm. They flew me over, and the next minute, they, this limousine picked me up. <laughs> Back in the day when they, when they, when they admitted that they had budgets, no, <laughs> they, they still have the budgets. They just use the the credit crunch as an excuse. Um, and then I, the next minute, I was on this like private jet with you know drinking whiskey with Danny DeVito and Rio Perman watching South Park with her kids <laughs> and <laughs> it was so surreal I remember like sort of being in my hotel like and actually just like being so um, focused on the gig because mm -hmm. I, I just knew it was this amazing opportunity and then um, I remember saying to Stephen you know I remember going to see the film and uh, then I had a meeting with Stephen, and uh, we just had this great meeting. And you know, 
and I've worked with him ever since and mm. now he's gone and fucking retired <laughs> <laughs> it won't last yeah he keeps saying that doesn't yeah. he he keeps saying he's, he's, he's no I think it. I think he'll definitely I think he'll always be making stuff I just mm. think he'll be doing it on his terms right yeah you know it, but maybe in a couple of years I think someone just gives him like the, makes him an offer he can't refuse mm. no you know what man he's an amazing guy to work with actually one of the smartest people I've ever met just really understated just treats you so well um, and just lets you get on with it and mm. is really you know he really you know because you work with some directors and they're like very very hands on where he's kind of like he, he wants you to experiment and try new crazy ideas and yeah. you know work with like you know just weird instruments and try these different things and yeah. you know and that's why he's he, he's amazing you know it's like a bit like Stanley Kubrick I, I watched the making of um, A Clockwork Orange the other day just for doing some research and he used to give the scripts to the guy, the janitor he, you know he says right. make sure the janitor gets a script he says really he says yeah he just might come up with a brilliant idea Yeah. and although you know um, I don't know if he chose any but the fact that he was willing to listen to yeah. even the janitor Mm, which yeah. to me is a sign of a great artist because you know ultimately he's the one that makes the decision whether it's the right road or the or the wrong road mm. Mm. nice guy that David Holmes I have to say absolute pleasure and he's on Twitter as David Holmes 7 or is it David David 7 Holmes try and both Try and try and both. Track him down. Give Track him, a, him down. Give He's him a on Google. the tweets. He's on the tweets. Absolutely. Okay. Film news time. And as Al Pacino says in Heat, give me all you got. Give me all you got. Okay. Uh, what you got, Nick? Let's start with you, shall we? Hello. Uh, so I have Netflix news. Uh, after House of Cards, Hemlock Grove, and Arrested Development, they are uh, lining up a new series, which is called Sense Eight, and it's uh, coming from Andy and Lana Wachowski. Um, they don't really know too much about what it's about. It's a sci-fi thriller which is being described as, and I quote, a global tale of minds linked and souls hunted. Yeah, it's a pretty brave move on the part of Netflix because the Wachowskis do not generally make cheap entertainment. Um, and uh, after Cloud Atlas, which obviously didn't make a huge amount of money at the box office, yeah, it's a pretty risky venture, I imagine, because they, they kind of dream big, they do expensive stuff. Um, yeah, so that's my news. Is it with Netflix? Is their strategy to have these kind of big, potentially expensive, loss leading type programs to drive subscriptions? This is obviously like a key time for Love Film, Netflix, all these guys going head to head to try and get to sort of market share. Is the idea to have as big profile, high profile projects on the go now? I guess so. Everything they've done so far has been with kind of big name talent. You know, you've got David Fincher. You've got Elo Roth, you've got Mitch Hurwitz and the Arrested Development guys, and now the Wachowskis. So they're, they're clearly going after stuff which is going to get headlines and get attention. Um, they're working on this with Joe Straczynski, and they say in a press release, we, we've wanted to work with him for years, chiefly due to the fact his name is harder to pronounce than ours. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, all I can say is expect uh, casting news with Liev Schreiber and Olga Kurilenko. <gasps> Oh my word! Who, it's gonna be spell check again. Yeah, I should be clear; they have nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very bad joke. It's gonna be amazing. 
Straczynski, um, Wachowski, Schreiber. <laughs> well, that's we not give too up. difficult to pronounce. It's going to be the first promo in which the guy gives up voice over guy gives <laughs> up halfway through. <laughs> in a world where Seds are at a premium, Straczynski, Wachowski. Oh, there's no said in their name. Damn it. Oh, well, moving on, moving on, moving on. Uh, that's interesting, isn't it? Phil, what you got? That is interesting. Um, that is I've interesting. got another thing which is interesting, which is Prometheus 2 news. Well, not really news, more sort of semi-scuttlebutt. Semi speculation, semi leaks. I'm going to pass some of this over to Nick because he did a really interesting interview with the original Prometheus screenwriter John Spates last end of last year. In a minute, but I just wanted to kind of fill in on where they're at at the moment. And the rumor is that Fox is really struggling to come up with a story for <laughs> Prometheus Two. You, you laugh with the man, laugh of a man who's not that surprised. <laughs> but where we left them, Elizabeth Shaw and David's head, <clears throat> the two of them <laughs> heading Sorry. off in a giant. Yes, you know space crueler to uh, who knows where, but I mean John Spate said in that interview with 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 us last year, they kind of trammeled themselves into a story which seems to be heading towards an engineer homeworld. Uh-huh. And uh, Damon Lindelof has has tweeted in response to the story saying that actually no, he didn't write an original trilogy. He hasn't bailed out because he can't work out what to do with it. Um, but he's not involved in this. He's got. J.J. Abrams' business and other things on the go as well. Ooh. So they are he's looking. Got, he's got Tomorrowland, of course. Tomorrowland. Does this mean he's going to be involved in episode seven? I don't know. Who knows? Possibly. But I mean, you know, he has always fronted up to the, let's say, substantial criticism of Prometheus, um, and he's tried. You know, I think he's he's just said that no, it's not it's not on him. But Fox are clearly needing some ideas for this. We should but, say that this is all. This is all, you know, and there's nothing confirmed. Nobody has come out and from Fox and said, hey, we, we can't come up with an idea. This is all sources and unnamed. Yeah, absolutely. Hence, yeah, hence, the, hence the scuttlebutt. scuttlebutt yeah. I mean, it is, it is, yeah, it is rumours and leaks. Um, it's come from online sources and there is no substantiation. But you wouldn't expect Fox to come out and say, oh, my God, we don't know what to do with this. Well, to be um, fair, they have painted themselves into a corner. And you have to question Elizabeth Shaw in the movie, who's a seemingly smart cookie, Although she doesn't mention the fact that she's just given birth to some sort of hideous alien octopus thing whenever she stumbles into the room with Guy Pearce in it. But anyway, moving on. Um, you'd have to maybe question her decision. She's just met an engineer and it hasn't worked out well. So why would she go to a whole planet full of engineers? That's that's a suicide mission, isn't it? What's she going to expect when she gets there? Also, Hello, uh, you just tried to kill me. Um, I know it will kill you. Also, what is she going to eat? There's not going to be any food, presumably, on that on the uh, on the engineer ship. Yeah, must be engineer vending machines. And David David can work it out. He can plug his head into a into one of the engineer computers. Surely they've got some challenges. No yeah. question. She hasn't thought this through in any way. I don't know thought. how they know how to fly this thing. Well, David kind of he knows everything. He's just a head. He hasn't even got. He blows into whistle. You, you can operate. Yeah, he can operate. But he's got a space oh, flute. flute. Good point. Yeah, space yeah. flute. He's got a space flute. Well, you always that's always your answer to a plot hole. Oh, space flute. Space flute. Yeah. <laughs> Fastbender's going, it's all right, lads, I've got a space flute. It's fine. <clears throat> That's space jam. And they go, enough penis jokes, Fastbender. No, no, it's actually a flute. Oh. <laughs> well, already we have some ideas for Fox. It's a really it's odd one. Fox. <laughs> it's a really odd one. Make I, it a musical. I, I'd be very curious to hear what John Spates has to say about this and why he's not being asked to come back. Because, yeah, well, you're right, when I spoke to him last year, he did actually say he had a whole bunch of ideas. He had sequences in his head. He said he had, like, a, a scene which was going to be even grimmer than the Medpod sequence so he really? clearly has a trilogy mapped out in his mind and if Fox didn't want to go in that direction in the first place I don't know why they hired him it's just very muddled it, the whole thing didn't he write The Darkest Hour which was a one star absolute bombsite I'm not saying he should do it <laughs> yeah I do have an idea for a film you've just you've just popped into my head we go full meta we pull back 
we pop back the curtain. Numi Rapace gets to the engineer homeworld. Turns out it's actually John Spade's brain, right? Mm. The whole movie takes place inside John Spade's head. As he comes up with a story for Prometheus 2, the tagline is... In spades, no one can hear you scream. It's an hour of space fluting. <laughs> space flute. He's loving, yes. it. He's loving it. If they don't make being John Spades. Sorry, lads, I've got my spades flute. Put it away! Anyway, so MGM uh, want to make, off the back of their successes recently, uh, with Skyfall and Hobbit, they suddenly have cash again, which is great, and they want to use another one of their cows to make more money. Lara Croft is this particular cow. Not the best choice of words, but let's roll with it. In the 90s, early noughties, we had Lara Croft both on our consoles and on our cinema screens with uh, Angelina Jolie and Chris Barry off Red Dwarf. God bless him. They want to reboot it, in much in the same way that the game franchise has recently rebooted uh, itself. Maybe a few weeks ago, uh, we had the origin story of Tomb Raider, where we saw the young Lara lost and trapped on an island trying to survive for herself. It's very kind of dark and grim and explains mm-hmm. how she learnt to kill and all that kind of stuff. How to Raid Tombs, though that doesn't actually happen that much as people who've played the game will tell you. Graham King is the producer who's going to be on board with this. There are no names put forward as yet for who would play Lara. There is no director. But it is of note that, like Ubisoft, the people behind the games, who are called Crystal Dynamics, will be keeping a close eye. They've explicitly said they want to be in charge or at least involved with the way the plot progresses and how it's made, uh, which for me as a gamer is very, very important. I'm not saying that the Tomb Raider games are the ones where I go, wow, what an amazing plot twist, or it's incredible. But if there's anybody who actually knows the character, it's them. That, for me, is positive. This is a good thing. This is a good uh, project to be remade, I think. It's exactly right. They, they kind of messed it up completely the first time. Uh, the first two films are absolute rubbish. Were you um, a runner on the second one? I was on The Cradle of Life. I was uh, running around. I saw Chris Barry doing some ADR. It's very exciting. <laughs> uh, but I, I, th- I think it's obvious who should play Lara Croft as well. Go ahead. You interviewed her very recently. Ryan Reynolds. Yes. <laughs> get him in. Get him in the shorts. No, Gemma Arterton. Very interesting. Gemma Hansel Arterton. and Gretel. She's she's hot off of Hansel and Gretel. If I can't believe I said those words. <laughs> um, and. She'd be perfect, wouldn't she? I think I think that's actually a really good idea. I, I I would like to see that because we know she can do that posh, plummy accent, which is important for this role. She can do the action stuff. Yeah, she's very likable. Brunette. It's done. All right, it's All right. done deal. Yeah, it's done. Uh, Easy. I just pressed the cast Gemma Arterton Intermitter reboot button that we have here in the office. I don't. But wonder what that's been for for ages. I've been staring at it. It's got its purpose. But it's funny that you say Gemma Arterton. It's good that that's a name that they can put in the bag and people can talk about online. But personally, I think this is a franchise where you could introduce a new actress. I think it has enough strength to do that. Mm-hmm. So fingers crossed, either Gemma or somebody fresh-faced. And um, how can I put this? Uh, of the right physical measurements. Okay, yes. I can, I, I, yeah, I see where you're coming from. Uh, Angelina Jolie, of course, does a very, very good British accent, but she's not British. So maybe... We should also talk about two huge Empire-related events. Uh, it's time for a quick shameless plug. There was, of course, the Jemison Empire Awards, which took place on Sunday at the Governor House Hotel in the heart of London's bustling London. Uh, so what did, we, uh, what did we make of that? The big winner in the night, of course, was uh, Sam Mendes and uh, Skyfall, who took home approximately 3,000 awards on the night, including Best Film. Sightseers won Best British Film, which I was delighted to see. It's encouraging that the, that the readers thought that way because so often these things can be... I'm not looking at you directly, Golden Globes, but I'm definitely staring around your award ceremony. Um, it feels quite cynical, uh, whereas it was lovely to see sightseers. They, they were absolutely over the moon to win. Mm. I don't think they, they walked in. I was in the photo booth. They walked in and went, I don't believe it. I thought Skyfall <laughs> were going to be a you know, dead cert for this. Yeah, so. Skyfall was a bit of a juggernaut in the night. I mean, it beat 
Avengers Assemble um, quite handily, and I thought that was a film that might have a chance of maybe dethroning James Bond, but but no, apparently not on the night. Huge, huge result for Skyfall, and it is a great film, so that's a good thing. Successes for Woman in Black. Our uh, special awards were given out to very deserving winners. Dame Helen Mirren won the Empire Legend Award. Daniel Radcliffe was there. He picked up our Empire Hero Award, which means he now has superpowers. Um, Daniel Boyle, Outstanding Contribution Award, and the Empire Inspiration Award with the Sam Mendes. Good night, guys. Yeah, great. And I, I think the big winners of the night were Phil and myself for our uh, cocktail pun titles. Uh, Phil, apparently Ginger Liming's playbook got some love from Jodie Whittaker. <laughs> <laughs> and, Did it? And Edgar Wright tweeted a picture of um, yeah. Zero Dark Thirsty. So. Yes. Well, I had a, I mean, I was fortunate enough to be chaperoning Helen Mirren on the evening, and <clears throat> I don't know, I was just chatting to her um, her publicist when we were standing at the bar waiting for a drink, and I just, in passing, I was looking at the cocktail list that were out the bar, and I went, oh, look, I've named that one. Silver Liming's Playbook, <laughs> I'm quite proud, because they asked us to come up with some ideas. It's rubbish, but I thought, you know, ha. Huh. And she went, and she went, oh, oh wow hang on a second Dame Helen Phil's named a cocktail and I'm like great you've had like four Oscar nominations <laughs> this is the worst moment of my year so far I bet she's never named a cocktail I bet, he, I bet she has she probably has it's probably better named than Silver it's probably an incredible what was it Ginger Liming's Playbook Ginger Liming's Playbook good. that is pretty good what was it's not as good as uh, Zero Dark Thirsty Zero Dark Thirsty the other one was Jemison Unchained which I think was either a group effort or it might have been me. I'm not I think sure. It was, I think it was workshopped. It was workshopped. Um, and I think Martin Freeman might have had one or two Ginger Liming's playbook. Because he was he was uh, cutting loose on the dance floor. That he was won a uh, best sight. actor for The Hobbit. He did, and he was at the after party, and he was high fiving people on the dance floor. It was fantastic. Mm. Never underestimating the voting block of Middle Earth. No, absolutely. He was very very lovely. His speech was great. He went. I don't think I've got the best performance of the year, but it's very very nice to get this. And it is. I think he's he, he's the best thing in that movie. And so it's good to see him being rewarded. It has to be said. Let's talk about another huge empire event it is new empire week whooping cheering yay people riding in the streets that sort of thing it is a huge event for us uh, on the cover it is star trek into darkness a wonderful gatefold fold-out cover featuring the entire crew of the enterprise from uh, including alice eve interesting enough and uh, in Wait, that's middle- not the entire crew is it well, not the entire crew. There's thousands of them. We couldn't fit them all on the cover. Benedict Cumberbatch is on the cover there, looking all dark and evil and scary and menacing. And then in the middle, we have Mr. J.J. Abrams, because this issue is a celebration of one of the hottest directors in Hollywood. Uh, and it is uh, filled with J.J. Abrams stuff uh, from uh, an oral history of Lost, which Nick did, which is absolutely brilliant. Uh, we also uh, have a, a big Star Trek Into Darkness feature. I fulfilled the childhood dream by reuniting two of my heroes, Kurt Russell and John Carpenter. That's why I was in L.A. a couple of weeks ago, and they were magnificent. Um, and the, the piece is all tons of fun. Uh, you know, they're just... Great, great, great guys. Great shoot as well. Uh, elsewhere inside the issue, we have the world's first look at the new Paul Greengrass film, which is a, a big noise. That's uh, the Tom Hanks starring Captain Phillips. So check that one out with a, an exclusive interview with uh, Paul Greengrass. Olga Kurylenko, star of the J. Michael Straczynski and Wachowski's project coming up soon. Uh, she's also in there as well. Uh, amazing shoot with her in the issue. And uh, we have a look at Mud, which is uh, possibly featuring Matthew McConaughey's best performance. We have tons and tons of other stuff in there. Nick, what else is in the issue? Game of Thrones shoot is really, really good. I love that. That's in your section, Nick. Game of Thrones, yeah. yeah. We gathered the Starks together um, in a hotel room and then froze it. And uh, we lost a couple of them along the way, but it was worth it. (laughs) We lost it. You killed people off. Pretty much, yeah. We we should have just done it digitally. I realise that now, but... No, that, that's fun. That's like a huge six-page uh, kind of celebration. Mm-hmm. I spoke to, uh, this is a bit random, I spoke to the guy who designed the beards in The Hobbit. Lovely man. And it turned out I went to the same school as him. 
Really? Yeah. That's of limited interest to the, the readership <laughs> in general. Don't don't uh, say that. You never know. They but he talks through the, the Hobbit's best beards. The best beards. It's the amazing. Beards. And on occasion, we have uh, exclusive set visits from the, the set of White House Down, which is great fun. We have a look at Hummingbird, in which Jason Statham tries to have a crack at serious acting for... Well, not the first time, but he, he's given a, a damn good go, and that's an exclusive interview from with him. And uh, we have a, a first look at uh, an intriguing movie, which could well be in the Oscar race come next year, Desert Dancers. So take a look at that one. And we have tons of other stuff, including, and Nick, this is very exciting as well, world-exclusive images, and the first interview with Steve Coogan about Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa. Aha! Aha! I'm contractually obliged to do that. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Um onset of the Partridge movie and then obviously you know the centrepiece of the issue is the uh, amazing interview with J.J. Abrams himself um, in which he discusses his love of Downton Abbey mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> many other things <laughs> uh, Ali I've just remembered you've got a, a pint of milk interview here with uh, Gemma Arden yeah Nick just mentioned it yeah did you ask her about Tomb Raider did you try and cast her in Tomb Raider at that uh, point no she was just being far 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 too flirty to have a comfortable interview she I want to know what her really filthy joke is if you read the Pine and Milk interview with Gemma Arden we ask what's your favourite joke and she says I've got a really filthy joke which could never be printed and I tell it to friends when I think I've got to know them well and then they basically all shun her afterwards I, and she refused to tell it to you because you don't even talk it for five minutes I asked again at the end of the interview and she said look you know this has been great good, good, <laughs> good 20 minutes we just don't know each other well enough I wonder if it involves a space flute. Oh, hello. I, 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 okay. <laughs> All right. Lovely stuff. There's a lot of blushing in this room. As Alan might say, lovely stuff. That, uh, that partridge thing is my, possibly my favourite thing in the issue. So do check it out if you can. I must also mention, before we move on to the reviews, there's a fantastic season of movies dedicated to the great John Burman going on at the BFI South Bank in London at the moment. If you can get along, there's a month-long retrospective of the man's legendary works from Point Blank to Deliverance and so on and so on, but also the more obscure movies, including early works and films like Leo the Last. Burman popped in the other day to the pot booth to record a fascinating one-hour special, which will be up next week. But the retrospective time to coincide with his much-deserved BFI fellowship is on now until the end of April, so go see. Okay, refuse time. Danny Boyle's trance, a twisty-turny heist thriller where, like Inception of Mind, is a scene of the crime, opened on Wednesday, and to coincide with that, we put up a fantastic hour-long podcast special with the great man who's not only one of our greatest directors, but a blinking national treasure as well. That's available now, and in it he talks about his movies, the Olympics, his love of action movies, and more. But to wet your whistle, here's a brief five-minute excerpt. What has been kind of the darkest hour for you that you'd maybe want to use hypnosis <laughs> to figure out all about? What's been, what's been the, the closest you've come to a meltdown? Or to a meltdown? Um, not really. I mean, you have tough days. There's, uh, there's days where you have to be pretty brutal sometimes, and which is not you're not very comfortable with, but it is necessary sometimes. Um I suppose the darkest hours are really when um, either you fall seriously behind. Um, it doesn't so much happen so much now because you, for, for your, you, you, you're lucky enough to have enough money to uh, have a kind of a buffer within the film itself. But I certainly remember on hundred on um, Shallow Grave, the financiers, there are the, the, the film finances people who are people who insure the film. And they're the people who the financiers pay, to, they pay a premium to, to make sure that they deliver the film on cost. And they have the power to come in and fire you, really. It's weird the way it works, but they do, because they're literally the insurance company. And I remember we were so far behind on 
Shallow Grave because we were trying to be so ambitious that we had to there's a sequence at the end there's a fight sequence at the end where they all fight together and kick each other and stab each other with forks and hit each other's heads in fridges and stuff like that and originally that was going to take place in a dark shadowy noirish kitchen you know which would be very graphic and they made us turn the lights on because they'd say they said to the cameraman you had these terrible crisis meetings well Brian Brian Stefano wonderful cameraman how could we speed this up and he said the only way you could speed it up literally is for someone to go into the room and switch the lights on you know rather than it happening in a dark kitchen at night and then sure enough if you watch the movie somebody one of the three for some reason rushes into the kitchen and switches the lights <laughs> on it's like and that speeds up the process so that was a ironically given all the light available was a very dark hour for me but Slumdog Millionaire that wasn't a, a, one of those because that, that must have logistically been yeah no I always loved um, being there and shooting there and it was a lot of pressure for other people like the producer Christian it was a big pressure on him trying to make it work I I believed in the city and I, I not just as a as, as an experience but I believed in it as something that would get reflected in the movie eventually and that it was clear to me partly actually out of the experience of making the beach in Thailand in a very different way that we were going about this in the right way which is that we took very few people with us from here we trusted the local industry to deliver the film to us and that involves a lot of trust because they don't they know you can't control the city it's just you're you're foolish it's like trying to hold back the tide you're not gonna you're just fooling yourself you've got to go with it and it will reward you in the end in ways that are unexpected but are better than you anticipated even and so I was always very comfortable and in fact Christian had to drag me away at the end I would I just kept going you I couldn't stop every day <laughs> bring something new it's like infinite you know the varieties it throws at you so um he had to shut the account, the bank accounts, and kind of drag me away to the plane, and off we went to go and edit it. Really, you know. Um, directors are not traditionally people who uh, will get stopped in the street because a lot of people don't know what they look like. Yeah. Um, but since the Olympics and the whole you know national hero thing, uh, how has your how has it changed the way people react to you? I suppose uh, yes, the Olympics thing changed it a bit because it introduced people to you who either only partially sometimes know your films certainly don't follow them yeah. in the way that um, you know we're all film fans and um, so previously only people would come up who were interested in directors which is not many I mean even if they know your face they're not really interested in directors they want, <laughs> they're interested in actors if anything at all so the people who would approach you would be people who are really genuinely interested in film you know want to talk about film and stuff like that which is lovely since the Olympics yes you get a very different but again it's people who they don't really know much about the business and they just want to say something very genuine I, I've had a, a wonderful breadth of experience of people from all walks of life who come up to you and say hey thank you for that and they that's it they say that's all I wanted to say I just wanted to say that and they're off and they clearly don't know your movies from Adam you know but it's lovely um, um, or maybe they know Slumdog or Trainspotting but not many of them really um, and it's lovely to have that contact because it was obviously we set the we set the show up to be very much we said this is and it says it in the show this is for everyone it was a people's party a people's show genuinely and everybody that we invited to participate in it was told that and that's how they were participating this wasn't a showcase for talent we were showcasing the best of ourselves you know people like Rowan Atkinson everybody but they were all participating in it in the way that they knew that this was a celebration of the whole of us you know and the um 
and even the Queen in making herself so available ironically joined in with that you know that someone who's meant to be so separate from us all and who'd gone through a very formal jubilee celebration previously knew to kind of join in in a way and make herself accessible in a way that really surprised people you know Danny Boyle there and to hear the rest of that and as well 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 worth listening to you can download the rest now moving on we come to this week's reviews and what better place to start than with Lord Boyle's trance in which James McAvoy's art thief is smacked on the head during a robbery and he can't remember where he put the painting the blimmin idiot so his thuggish partner Vincent Cassell recruits hypnotist Rosario Dawson to help him remember and it all gets very weird very fast very Phil <laughs> it does I we when I saw this film I got an email from Danny Ball I'm sure it was just personally to me not just to everyone that had seen it demanding asking spoilers to be kept to a minimum it's one of those films that twists and turns like a rattlesnake with a hernia to coin a phrase and I don't want to give too much away but yes you're right James McAvoy plays the kind of I guess the part that Ewan McGregor might have played in kind of Shallow Grave Territory the film that this cleaves closest to in tone I think mm. um, it is a kind of London set black thriller with tiny bits of comedy tiny bits of horror it's very much his own thing I can't really think of any other films I mean Shallow Grave is the obvious kind of companion piece to this it's a return to working with John Hodge um, it's got a kind of mordant streak to it Um for me, I really, I really enjoyed it. I felt it kind of slightly went off the rails a little bit in the third act. I thought the the ending was a little kind of uneven and and sort of off kilter, and it kind of left you with a slightly strange sort of tang in the mouth. Um, but it's a lot of fun. I don't think it has pretensions to be anything other than what it is, which is a kind of a bit of a riotous black thriller, which throws some some brilliant visuals from Anthony Dobmantle, Danny Boyle's longtime cinematographer. Um, it's a great looking film. It's uh, all sort of angular and nighttimey, and it's got some great club scenes. Fancy Cassell plays the villain. Is he the villain? Is just the more to James McAvoy character that meets the eye? Who knows? It's all kinds well, of weird stuff. You've seen it. Unless uh, you've forgotten, I've and we have to hit the tape to remember it. it. It does look an absolutely amazing. This film, cinematography is incredible, and it also sounds great because um, he's got Underworld's Rick Smith back to write a load of new uh, new tunes for the movie, which are pretty pretty intense and great. And uh, there's a M People track which plays over a really inappropriate uh, <laughs> moment in the film. But it's really fun. It's really well directed, and uh, Boyle, um, as you heard in the podcast, filmed it before breaking off with the Olympics opening ceremony then edited afterwards um, but it's it's really good fun I mean it, it doesn't have the Queen parachuting out of a helicopter or Kenneth Branagh in a big hat or a giant Voldemort but it is still as entertaining I would say as the opening ceremony yeah he said that um, <coughs> working it was the kind of the yin and yang thing the, the Olympic ceremony was this big kind of brassy pomp and circumstance celebration and this was appealing to his kind of darker side. Yeah, and uh, very much so. And the Frankenstein that he was doing at the National Theatre as well. He was yes. kind of balancing all of these, juggling all these balls. Um, yeah, and I think it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we've been very positive about this. I think some of the characters are very dark, so dark and so unapproachable. It's difficult to actually connect with them. I feel like it twists and turns too much at times, and that it lost track of. I mean, it's very slick and very confident. I, I, I never felt like it was kind of totally losing itself. It, it knew what it was, but I think some Danny Boyle aficionados may feel like you say like they're going to have a bad taste in their mouth because it is just so bleak and so dark and so slick that you can't fully engage or care about certain characters because. Everything's just kind of twisting and turning and turning and twisting. 
Next up, I'm going to just say a few words very, very quickly about Good Vibrations. I've already mentioned it before. It's a second movie from husband, wife, director, team, Glenn Leyburn, Lisa barros Desai. You've heard David Holmes, who's the producer and also uh, was the executive producer behind the brilliant soundtrack. Um, this is a fantastic film, as I said, about Terry Hooley, who owns a record store and a record label called Good Vibrations in Belfast, the height of the troubles in the 1970s. Uh, this is a, a really, really fun film that, for me, as a Northern Irishman especially, uh, captures the sense of the troubles perhaps better than any film I've ever seen and I think the attitude of ordinary people towards the Troubles Terry Hooley was a man who was beset on all sides by both the IRA and uh, the Protestant uh, terrorist organisations and he basically rubbed them up the wrong, wrong way And but ordinary people in the Troubles just tried to get on with their lives and didn't let what was happening affect them as much as it perhaps should have done and that's the sort of indomitable spirit I think that Northern Irish people had and this film really captures it's got a great soundtrack real real sense of fun and Richard Dormer who played Terry Hooley is fantastic in the role so do check that Mm. out if you can so uh, there you go good vibrations moving on let's turn our attention now to another movie that came out on Wednesday and uh, sorry Andrew Moore but this one has The Rock in it it's G.I. Joe Retaliation the sequel slash reboot of the first lamentable G.I. Joe film in which the beleaguered forces of Joe led by Johnny Tatum and The Rock tackle the malevolent Cobra led by well Jonathan Price and a guy who's not as expensive as Joseph Gordon-Levitt thoughts on this one a couple of points just to get straight off the bat. It is better than the first one, but that's not very hard. Jonathan <laughs> Price has an amazing time, and he's absolutely over the moon, it seems, to be given such a silly part. He's playing the president, but as a Cobra operative who's wearing special nanotechnology that means that he looks like the president and acts like the president, but isn't the president. Oh, my God. He gets to talk to himself, uh, kind of, you know, the president as the Cobra guy versus the real US president, and that's very, very good fun. Uh, The Rock is The Rock. If you like The Rock, you'll get a kick out of his rockishness, but he is, I feel, underused and somewhat underwhelming uh, as the silly plot twists and ludicrous character development. He plays Roadblock, and he's basically the size of a roadblock, but I don't think his rockularity is as as high in this uh, as it is in Fast Five. No, it's not, but he is is what he is. I don't think you've got to walk out going, God, he was really taking a break from the rock thing. Um, But it is based on a series of plastic four-inch men, uh, so please don't expect this to be Schindler's List 2. It is unfortunately a disappointment for people who enjoyed Fast Five and were expecting something similarly fun and exciting. It has its moments. Bruce Willis maybe has one, but the assorted cast that kind of try to help The Rock as he challenges Cobra, they've taken over the White House, by the way, are just weak, and at times I was quite bored watching this film. Plastic, even, you might say. Uh, some of the other ones in this movie but yeah go and see it for two things I, I would say if you do go and see it at the cinema you don't have to it might be a decent DVD release go and see it for there's an amazing snowbound mountain fight between ninjas on, on ropes uh, which is fantastic and Jonathan Price is great fun and we'll have an interview with him coming up in a few seconds and that is also uh, a lot of fun so do go and see it for that otherwise we gave it two stars which is definitely not a recommendation but it does have its moments there's a host of other releases out this week including funnily enough The Host the latest movie based on the Stephanie Meyers novel no glistening vampires here though this one's about alien possession and stars Saoirse Ronan this has not been screened to press at the time of recording the podcast that's never a good sign <laughs> you could say but you never know it could be a five-star classic. Speaking of five-star classics, we gave a blistering five stars to the latest from Francois Ozon, which is called In the House and stars Kristen Scott Thomas, so do seek that out at your nearest art house cinema this weekend or go around Phil's where it'll be playing on a loop. Uh, and also uh, getting five stars is John Berman's classic movie, Point Blank, starring Lee Marvin as an avenging force called Walkers, re-released around the country this weekend. 
do go and see it if you haven't already done so. And speaking of Jonathan Price, he popped into the pod booth recently to talk to myself and Ali about G.I. Joe, about Bond, about all sorts of things. And it's devilishly entertaining. Do check it out. Uh, we are delighted to be joined in the Empire Pod booth by none other than Jonathan Price. Hello, sir. How are Hello. you? Hello. I'm good, thank you. You are, uh, I believe the phrase is a hoot. You know, when you make films, it's hit and miss. Mm. It's no longer up to you once once you've done your bit. And uh, it's quite it's rewarding to hear that uh, it's, it's come out well. <laughs> um, I remember going to see uh, the final Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't know whether this will translate a podcast, but the final uh, Caribbean premiere. Yeah where I hadn't uh, really wanted to do the last two. Gore said he really wanted to be in it, and we've written two really good scenes for you, so we hope you'll do it, because hope you, you know. So I said, sure, and the scenes were good, and we shot them. And I sit down at the premiere in L.A., and I'm thinking, this is this is good. Here's, it's coming up to this big scene. Nothing. <laughs> oh, no. And I turned. Behind me, Gore was sitting and he resolutely did not catch my eyes for the rest of the night so it's it's um john chu has assured me that everything i did <laughs> is in the film and possibly more yeah so i'm looking forward to seeing it just to give people a taste of 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 what the character's like zartan is the name of the bad guy yeah and then through, through nanotechnology you become the u.s president who has no name which i find quite curious but you say things like, I get to hang out with Bono, uh, or Bono, rather, Bono. which yes. I absolutely loved. And when you set off this this missile, it cuts to your character playing Angry Birds and then yeah. saying high score yeah. and kind of yeah. doing a little fist pump. Um, how much of that was you that you stuck in, that you went, I've got an idea. How about I say this? Oh, uh, you've picked two moments that I didn't stick in. <laughs> I because I had, uh, when John said, um, we want you to play Angry Birds, at this, I was like, play what? Because I I was then, um, not now, but I was a BlackBerry user. Mm-hmm. And you, as far as I know, you couldn't play Angry Birds on BlackBerry. No. Um, so I was introduced to that and introduced to the new iPhone. Um, I'm now an iPhone user, uh, fully paid for, not, uh, not no gifts <laughs> for the ad. Um, and uh, I made the same mistakes. I could never remember whether you said Bono or yeah, Bono. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and why would you? given that music but uh, you're not a fan do you know if you played me one of their records I wouldn't know <laughs> okay. what it was and then when I have heard them I think that's it, they're pop, it's pop music mm. yeah yeah so what is uh, if we if we were to uh, if we weren't I mean, we're not going to obviously because journalists don't do this sort of thing anymore but if we were to hack your phone and look at your iPod uh, your music on your phone yeah. what, what would be on the uh, the Jonathan Price iPod there's a huge selection there mm-hmm. because uh, both my sons hack into my iTunes account <laughs> and it is a bit of a surprise uh, the sort of filth that is on there <laughs> but um, no I've, I, I like all types of uh, music really mm-hmm. and um, having had I mean I've always been interested in, in uh popular music as it were you know obviously with growing up through uh, the Beatles and onwards mm. and uh, and folk music and I love the resurgence now of this sort of folk rock music and new folk singers yeah. um, my favourite band would be uh, and I got to see them live last year was Beirut okay. oh, my really? favourite yeah. singer would be Leonard Cohen and it's all that kind of stuff but right. and Neil Young who I also got to see for the first time Do you know time. Andrew Bird? You fan of him? 
I've not, Henry Word. Andrew Bird. Okay. Andrew Bird. Andrew I have Bird, Andrew yeah. Bird on my yes. <laughs> but have you heard Henry Word? <laughs> I hear he's good. Have you heard any word I've said? <laughs> have, you, have you heard of Bono? <laughs> you were a Bond villain in Tomorrow Never Dies. Had you were you au okay with Bond, or was that something that you wanted to? Oh, do? Bond. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, hope I don't disappoint or insult anyone. Mm. I I'm, I'm, wasn't a huge fan. Mm. So, and, and you discover there's a whole world out there of people who are enormous fans. And uh, But I, I did enjoy doing it. And uh, I'm gl- I talked around about being a villain in a Bond film before, and I'm glad it, it kind of everything waited until it was mm. that one because I it was a villain that I I've, could play with some credibility. And it had, uh, especially in the original script, there was a lot of uh, political intent behind it. Okay. And uh, I remember I had one long speech as Elliot Carver laying out his uh, his uh, vision of uh, world domination, it sounded like. Um, but was it was quite a telling speech politically. And uh, we recorded it. And as you do, you go to the premiere. <laughs> oh, no. And in front of it was James Bond running about shooting, fighting. And I was going, oh, wait, stop, listen. <laughs> this bit's good. I'm talking. Get out of the way. Um, yeah. So, for example... But I'm you... glad I did it. But it does mean that uh, every month a huge wadge of photographs, multiples, mm-hmm. take note of this, German fans, multiples come from Germany uh, for you to sign as Elliot Carver. Okay. And... I know you don't have that many children in your family (laughs) and you know who I'm talking to. If you send me their names, I'll sign them to them. Mm. Please send uh, eight photographs for every member of my family. They're all the same. Thank you. They could have large families. Yeah. They could have large families. With no names. With no names. (laughs) Mr. eBay. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So have you seen Skyfall, for example? I saw that, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was interesting because that was a... It was held as doing a uh, for, for doing a lot of things first for the Bond franchise. Uh, one of which was we get to see James Bond's obituary. But you wrote James Bond's obituary. I did, yes. In uh, yeah. in Tomorrow Never Dies, yeah. and it's one of my favourite things. I I I love as a little note uh, as as an actor, I guess uh, that you threw in when you type his obituary. Yeah. You type incredibly quickly. With, yeah. with one hand. Yeah. Were you typing anything, or was that just your? No, I was typing time? exactly typing. the words that came up on the screen. Of course. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, just, I would like to know where... Uh, where Elliot, the way that script went, they yeah. probably hadn't written what I was writing by the time. <laughs> we had things like... Um, I shouldn't give all these secrets away, but uh, my colleague uh, Gupta. Gupta, Gupta yes. And had been written for an Asian uh, actor. Okay. And um, Ricky Jay turns up, this uh-huh. uh, New York Jew. Yes. And he says, yeah, I go up for all the Gupta roles. <laughs> <laughs> I generally get them. But we'd, we'd get a page of script which said uh, um, Carver shoots Gupta or somebody shoots. Yes. And uh, so you get the page and you go, oh, God, I've got to shoot him. Okay. And then you'd be waiting and then you'd hear the do- uh, Ricky's door would open. Jonathan, you don't shoot me anymore. <laughs> the new page had arrived. Oh, okay. <laughs> Blue note. And then another page comes 25 minutes later. So oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> so, Welcome to the world of Bond. Yeah. The films that you're most recognised for these days, Jonathan, I imagine Pirates happens quite a lot these days, but do you, is Brazil still number one for you? Yeah, and it, it's still, it's the great thing about Brazil was it was a great film at the time, and it continues to be held up as a, as a, a great 
film. Um, and it's very you know, rewarding um, that it keeps finding a new audience and a mm. young audience who find it on DVD or if it's ever shown in art houses anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, uh, I, th- I think part of it, it, it never, to me, anyway, and to a lot of people, I think it doesn't look dated because it's, mm. You can't date it. No, they can't. they made this decision to do kind of retro future look to it. So using computers that look like old valve radios and all that stuff. It was, uh, you know, sort of prescient. It predicted a uh, a move in our society that the, the fear of government and uh, hacking and um, and bombing and terrorism, mm. and uh, as Orwell did before him. I guess it was your first experience with Terry Gilliam. Did you know, working with him, that this would be a relationship that, w- that would endure? Um, well, I, ho- I hoped it would. We got on really well. He'd offered me another film before that. He'd offered me Time Bandits. Okay. And uh, to play the evil genius. I, don't know. I hope David Warner doesn't mind me saying that. But uh, <laughs> I'd, just, um, I'd just been playing Hamlet for, I think it was £90 a week for three months. Okay. And I was broke and uh, at the same time, I was offered the classic film Loophole, and Loophole paid twice as much as oh. Time Bandits would pay me, and I didn't have to wear the silly hat. <laughs> <laughs> that always so, happens. yeah, I, had, I have a dread of wearing a cowl <laughs> on my really? head. Yeah, okay. I've turned down roles before now. <laughs> With cowl? Yeah, not a good look. My I could never have been no. a hoodie. It doesn't, uh, <laughs> doesn't work for me. So I chose to do Loophole. Do you ever see Loophole? I haven't seen Loophole, I'll be honest. It's a classic. Albert Finney, Martin Sheen, Uh bank robbery done through the sewers. And um, I go, it's shot in Bray Studios, and Mm -hmm. I turn up for work, and John requested the director would greet us every morning, and I'd say, how's it going, John? He said, it's really good. He said, working spec, we've got Albert, we've got Martin, we've got yourself, we've got Tony, we've got... And he'd list all the actors who were in it. And we were having a miserable time. We knew it wasn't a great yeah. film. And uh, I went in to see Martin Sheen, who was sat in his trailer with his head in his hands. This is 1980. Mm-hmm. And I said, Martin, um, we chatted a bit. And I said, why, why are you doing this film? And uh, he said, well, when I was younger, I was an usher in a theatre in New York. And Albert was doing Luther. Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge fan of his He's God. So when I had the opportunity to do this film, I so we traced this cast oh, no. <laughs> all the way back to Albert. Oh, I did it because Albert was doing it, because Martin was doing it, because I thought, <laughs> well, it must be good if they're doing it. Right. And then you would go all the way down the line, and there was Albert sitting happy at the top of the pile, <laughs> and he'd done it for the money. So uh, oh, okay, okay. Anyway, it's not a great film. But it's a, be- it's a better story than if I'd done Time Bandits. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> you never know, it might have aged well. It yeah. might have aged well. Uh, but Brazil was a different experience for you because sometimes they, uh, actors say you can't really tell in a movie whether you're making a good film or a bad yeah. film. Could you tell in Brazil that you were making a great film? Well, I, I no, I, we, you don't know you're making a great film, but it's. Mm. Uh, I knew it was what we were doing was worthwhile and, and what was getting done was good. And because I was on it for the months and on it every day, mm. um, it was a bit like red, you know, red buses. If you missed that one, you, there was another scene coming along. You could retrieve it. <laughs> but also, it meant that every, at the end of most shooting days, Terry and I would go off and rehearse the next day's work. And 
I, it was like a repertory company. I was there as a constant, and then you'd get Bob Hoskins coming in for a few weeks yeah. and De Niro turning up and all those, you know, the Palin coming in and everything. And it was it was uh, it was fun. But the, the, on the hard times, when Terry would suspend me from a wire in a <laughs> costume and <laughs> and I'd complain, and he'd say, "This is your punishment for turning me down." On <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it didn't make you wear a cowl. No. No, or a few other funny things. <laughs> Precisely. There's always that. Were you involved in any way with the reshoots at the end? Because I know Terry had a lot of trouble with the endings and, and getting it actually put out into cinemas. Yeah. Were you part of that as well? You mean the re-edits? Yeah. Um, no, because uh, he, he made me not uh, promise not to cooperate uh, with any um, <laughs> wow. so he revoicing. Said, he sat anything. you down and said, I don't want you to be part of it. Yeah, and I didn't want to. I did, mm. I, this, this was Sidney Scheinberg and his yeah. edit and uh, going for the happy ending. Mm. And that's the version that I think is still shown on American TV, if it's ever shown. Mm. It's, uh, so the Americans never get the true horror at the end. <laughs> I've had wonderful times on films and... Um, yeah, great locations, sometimes great scripts. And occasionally just introduce you to, uh, to an iPhone and yes. the world of yeah. Angry Birds. Yeah. And there yeah. you go. Fantastic. Jonathan, it's been a pleasure, sir. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, thank you very in. much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Great guy like JP, isn't he? Ali, nice guy. Yeah, he's all right. He not, doesn't pull his punches, that doesn't guy. Doesn't pull his punches. Intriguing. Uh, very, very fun guy. Uh, and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by Rufus Sewell, star of All Things to All Men. That's already in the bag, that podcast, and it's good fun, yes? Yes, he's an absolute riot. Absolute riot. And this one's intriguing. Harmony Corrine, director of Spring Breakers, and a man who, it has been revealed recently, was banished from David Letterman because he was caught going through Meryl Streep's purse. <laughs> He'll have a field day when he sees my Star Wars rucksack. Uh, then we also have that brilliant John Berman special, which I strongly urge you to listen to for glorious anecdotes galore. Until then, it is goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. It is goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to have a toodle on a space flute. See you next week. <laughs>